Welcome to Grief is My Side Hustle. I am your host, as always, Megan Baird Jarvis, and I am really, really delighted today to get to be here with Anna Whitson Donaldson. Thank you so much for being my guest today. Thanks so much for inviting me. I said to Anna off mic that I feel like I've been lightly stalking her and been in my own world, in my own mind, engaged in your life story for quite some time. So this is just a really, it's like an honor to be talking to you. And I'm just looking forward to what we're going to be able to unfold for the listeners who are primarily interested in, you know, how do we get through this world where we have to grieve and we have to lose So I want to read people your bio, and then I just want to get in, you know, dig in a little bit about kind of how we lightly know each other and the story that you want to share with us. So Anna is a full-time writer and speaker. Her work has been featured in Women's Day, Ladies Home Journal, Washington Post, Daily Beast, Huffington Post, Today's Parents, and more. And she speaks to groups connecting women to each other. Those are your passions. Your writing's also been on my platform a number of times and people will notice that I tag you in things. So thank you so much for being here. And I would love to ask you the question that I ask all my guests when we get started is what brings you into the world of grief and loss? Sure. I was introduced to grief at 18 because I had just finished my freshman year of college and I'd come home that May and my mom, who was 46, died of a brain aneurysm. And it was just out of the blue. It was shocking. And it just sort of thrust me into this world of grief. And it was a time period where, and we can talk about this more, I'm sure, but where I really had no idea what to do with grief. I didn't know what resources were there. And so I just kind of put it on my back, like a backpack, went off to college and lived the rest of my life. And then when I was 41, my 12-year-old son, Jack, went out to play in the rain with his little sister and his friends in our neighborhood. And he ended up falling in a neighborhood creek that had been completely overrun with water. We were in a flood situation, but no one knew it at the time. And he was swept away. And so he ended up dying in the creek when he was 12 years old. So that is what really thrust me into this, this world of grief many years after my mom died. And how long ago did Jack die? So he died on September 8th, 2011. So it has been 11 years now. We just hit the 11 year mark, which is crazy to think about because in some ways, so many things have changed, but I still feel like myself and it's hard to believe that 11 years have passed since then. I feel the same way about that. I feel like, how is that possible that it's been 11 years? And, but also I'm listening to you saying I was this, you know, I was this age when this happened and this age when that happened. And I'm, I'm just thinking about how you can have experiences of loss, but because of who you are in each experience of loss, it's not like, well, I've done, you know, I've driven this road before. I know the windy curves it's a totally different beast to be in. It's time for me to launch myself out into the world and go to college and lose the backup of a parent. 
And then to even be a parent, I mean, I'm a parent, I'm still stunned most days that I'm a parent and then I'm in charge of things and, and to have a totally different experience of tragedy at age 41, which also to me, both of those things sound very young <laughs> to be expected to sort of navigate either of them. Yeah. I remember when my mom died at age 46. So I'm 18. Right. And I'm thinking, well, at least she had a full life. Right. This is what I mean. Right. And now I'm 53 and I'm like, kidding me. And, you know, when you're 18 and your, you know, prefrontal cortex or whatever, is not completely developed, developed fully yet. You know, I, I really was thinking more about what the loss was to me. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. And I got older and I went through different stages and thought about what I felt like my mom was missing out on. Yeah. And, uh, when, when Jack died, I felt my own profound grief, but it's, it's really easy to think about, okay, what is a 12 year old missing out on? And then as a parent, because at the time my daughter, his younger sister, Margaret was 10, I became very focused on how to help her yeah. in her. And so I don't think that meant I shoved my grief aside, but it meant I really was just focused on how can I help her while trying to gather this remnant of our family and try to move, move through it. First of all, yes, to both of the things that you have said. And I, in terms of like what your brain is doing and how you, what your perspective is at 18, we don't, really have the perspective of being able to think about how this is impacting everybody else. But I do think, you know, you know this and what I have is an intellectual understanding of this, but when a child dies, what is lost is their whole future. And when you have another child or you live in a neighborhood where your kids' friends are going to the next year of school or growing six inches over the summer, it is not difficult to see the life that they didn't get to live. Whereas when you're 18, you think everybody who's over the age of 40 is very old. Parse out a little bit like what, what resources or processes or actions were you able to avail yourself of at 18 that helped you just survive the loss of a mom? I would say that 18, the only thing I availed myself of was basically this inner strength that I had to just plod along. Just and, yeah. And so I really didn't have resources. I really feel like in many families, my family included, the mother is really the center of the home yeah. and having her physical presence gone instantaneously, that meant that the rest of us did not really have a way to support each other. Yeah. So we kind of went off. I had a dad and then a older brother, older sister. We just kind of went off in our own ways. We didn't really talk about my mom and because it just felt painful even to just verbalize our loss. So as a result, we didn't avail ourselves of any sort of therapy, counseling, support groups. I think we just kind of dug in different ways and just started following the paths that we thought we were on, whether that was school, getting married, et cetera. Yeah. And Oh, even though I was very well acquainted with grief because, you know, as you get older, you know, getting married without my mom there, having yeah. children with my mom there. I mean, the loss was just very present in my life as a, as a young woman, as a mother, 
when I would see other people, you know, whose, whose parents could help them out in certain ways, mm-hmm. I felt very alone. But I would say that when I was then thrust into grief with Jack dying, it's not like I was any sort of expert on grief because no. I didn't know what was out there to help me. Yeah. And also because Jack's death was so shocking and sudden, I knew absolutely nothing about, you know, trauma. Yeah. I didn't know the benefit that we would have by talking about it. Yeah. I didn't know how to access any sort of grief support. I thought about it later because I, there was some grief support in my area. And I think I knew that intellectually before my son died, yeah, yeah. but my brain was so broken after he died that I didn't, you could have said, Anna, is there a grief center in the Washington metropolitan area? And I would say, no, no, <laughs> no resources so, anywhere. Yeah. So even though I wasn't a stranger to grief, I don't consider that I was an expert in grief either. Yeah. The circumstances were different. The timing was different in that I think people 20 something years later were willing to talk about therapy and all that kind of stuff. But it was just like a whole different experience. Yeah. And it's when people talk to me about therapy, it'd be more like pulling me aside and saying, is your daughter in therapy? Are you in therapy? And it felt like more of a pressure thing to me, like one more area that I was failing in. Yeah. I failed, failed to keep my son alive. Right. Yeah. And I felt like I was failing every day trying to keep my family okay. And that was just one more like hurdle to try to, one thing to uh, try to. It's so brutal what you're talking about, because again, you know, I sort of come from the world of like therapy is a great resource, but grief, the experience of going through a devastating traumatic loss doesn't always mean you need therapy. It might not even mean that your kid needs therapy. Like the way that our body, you said your brain was broken, but is it's like hit by, you know, like a wily e. coyote, you know, hit by a frying pan. And, and there is this period of time where the body is trying to understand, right. You know, you know, this because you've grieved in the way that you have, that your brain doesn't even remember the details of the loss from day to day for a while. And so for a while you wake up and you have to relearn your brain has to remind you, which is so brutal that your beloved has died. And then eventually it doesn't have to remind you. It's like integrated the data into the system. And I've worked with people who had diarrhea for three years because the interior of their body was still roiling from the way that the world once spun on its axis and it no longer does. Just think about somebody moving from like a hot climate to a cold climate, how long they complain about that. It's like 10 years they complain about it. What we're talking about has so much more emotional content to it. What I remember of those early days, and you and I share Glennon Doyle in connection, which is really how I came into the story. I actually saw Glennon the day after Jack died. She and I had lunch and she was beside herself. And even though I didn't know you or your story, I had seen his beautiful photo that you posted to sort of alert your community. My memory about sort of being a spectator and, you know, coming in with care was that you were already writing. And I wondered what that was like, like you had and correct any of my memories. Cause again, they're 11 years old, but you had a community that was following the stories of your life as a blogger 
already. And I think you had pseudonyms for your kids, but you had a community of people. You were beloved to them, even though you were in some ways like a practical a stranger to, them. but I was very aware that you were using writing as a way to communicate your feelings in a way that it put me in a place of awe that there was this like raw honesty. Was that part of grief work for you? Was that a, I have a community of people and I need to let them know what's going on? What, what role did that, the fact that you were already a writer play? So, so glad you shared that memory with me because that is one of the things I wanted to share today, which is for me to actively grieve, that was completely intertwined with my writing. Yeah. Fortunately, I had already been blogging for a while before yeah. it happened. And so, because when I see, see people deep in grief who are able to start something new, I'm like, wow, how did they do that? And I think for me, I already had this blog in place and it was kind of this, I felt like it was a responsibility for me to show up to the people who'd been, you know, in my life through the screen for these several years to show up and, you know, let them know how I was doing, but I wanted to do that in an honest way Yeah. that they in turn showed up for me in a huge way. And so that really became my coping. I would write and they would show up, even though it was so painful for them to show up mm -hmm. and it was this, this beautiful relationship. And that led to, that was, that was my grieving. It even was helpful in letting in real life friends and family, even my own husband yeah. know how I was doing because it was too painful to talk about Jack's death, but I could write about it. Yeah. That makes perfect sense to me on my platform. I have a little grief writing workshop that from sort of a trauma perspective, there's the like, just writing out your memories because your brain is so foggy and, you know, your hippocampus is not letting go of memories. And so writing is actually, it's like yoga. It's a stretching technique, but also you have to figure out a way to carry the narrative. I remember when my mom died, suddenly I couldn't say the words my mom died without like my whole body kind of ringing like a bell. And at some point, you know, you've got to integrate the reality of the story. And I think the way that you're describing it, which is the distance of putting it down, there's also this great neuroscience out there that your brain doesn't have to turn the ideas over so much when it trusts that you have written it down, that it, that uh -huh. it allows you to sort of rest with the idea. But I, but again, I remember reading which it was not long after Jack had died. And for folks who don't know, your writing is on an inch of gray, your beautiful platform, but you wrote your, from a first person perspective, what it was like to this big rainstorm and this Creek that wasn't normally so swollen and delighting and having your kids be outside because that was part of your childhood experience. It just, not only was it some of the most compelling writing, but what it, I've, I, what I think about a lot and I wanted to ask you about today is that there is this thing in grief where people, they're not your tightest orbit. They're not your best friend. They're not your friend from college. They're like maybe the lady that you talk to occasionally and, you know, at the pool. So if one is the tightest, she's like a 48, you know, maybe a 50 mm -hmm. in terms of relationship, but she cares because this is a tragedy 
And the way in which that kind of caring shows up can be so awkward for both people, right? Like I had somebody after my mom died who, again, I see casually and she was like, I, we should get a drink. And I was like, first of all, you don't know me well enough to know I don't really drink. So that's right. weird. And secondly, we've never had a drink before. Why would we get a drink? Because my mom died. And so the I had this like, what? No, that's not what's going to happen. And also, I know you're trying to, to express love and care. So I just wondered about that. Like, did it only feel like love and care? Did it, was there hardship in it or was there comfort in it that these folks are kind of adjacent to your story, but they are going to care so much about the story? Oh my gosh. What a great question. I did experience a lot of what you're talking about. And part of it was me having boundaries up. I was so cognizant of what would be okay or not okay for my daughter. and. That helped me also ask, okay, what would be okay or not okay for me? For instance, she was 10 years old and 10 years old kids, you know, they don't want to like go find a bunch of new friends and be invited out to dinner with people they didn't know at all just because their brother died, right? For me, however, I got to tell you, I think grief is the most lonely. Yeah, it is. Disorienting situation you could ever be in. So I actually really craved those interactions, but because a lot of them were through my computer screen, I could have boundaries. Yeah. And, but I still needed them. And this is why I noticed that a lot of people, some people in my inner circle could not be there for me. And so by opening myself up to people who truly were just showing up because my son had died. I had enough intuition to really know if, if, if people were in it because they wanted to support me or whether they wanted to make it about them. And I would say, I could really tell that most people just wanted to support me. And I opened myself up to new friendship, new possibilities. And if you look 11 years later, now granted, even without grief in 11 years, your friendships will change. Agreed. Okay. Because Agreed. you're ages and some people are getting sober and that changes things. Some people are getting divorced. Your, your, your kid may be changing soccer teams and that changes your whole social life. There's a lot of movement, but I will tell you, there's a ton of friendship movement in grief. It's so brutal. And I just kept myself open to it because I was like, I need support. And I was so grateful for the support that I got. Be open, even if it was someone who would not have reached out to me otherwise. It's like, you can tell the people that just absolutely care. Yeah. 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 First of all, that's a gorgeous answer. And one I hadn't actually really imagined, which is surprising to me because I think in my own grief, I think, you know, I'm sort of trained in this kind of therapy, which is like what parts of your personality are showing up to drive the bus. And I had anger woke up every morning early and got on the bus and was insisting on driving the bus. And I'm not generally an angry person. I can be a reactive person, but I don't generally go through the whole day being like, fuck you. And when my mom died, I really think it was actually a life-saving energy. It was like the highest energy that I could muster. And it kept me moving forward, but it was not generous. It did not have a lot of generosity of spirit. And so 
I felt more the pain of what wasn't happening and going right than I was able to feel the generosity of the people who were showing up. It was like the anger kind of blocked that. So hearing you say that the craving for connection allowed that for you, it's just a nice thing to be reminded that not everybody has the same bus driver in their experience with their loss. Can I ask you a little bit also, because my memory is that you and Jack had a really deep spiritual center that, that to me felt like it was part of, I don't know what part of the energy that was in the holiness of the loss. And was that something that had pre-existed? Do I have that part right? I mean, I think that, and I wonder about this, were Jack and I exceptionally close and connected because he would only be here 12 years? I mean, you can ask yourself a lot of questions, but we were, were extremely connected. And then with his, you know, physical body gone, I did experience a lot of spiritual things. And Mm -hmm. I mean by that is, you know, you'll hear about people talk about signs and this, that, and the other. Mm -hmm. And I'm first to tell you, I didn't want signs. No, Jesus, no. I wanted Jack. I wanted a kid who's going to go through puberty and and Mm -hmm. be in all of these things. And I didn't get that. But I will tell you that Jack's death opened me up to realize that, that we really this is my very strong belief from what I've experienced after he died is that there is this spiritual realm and that when you die, a body dies, but the soul, the essence is not dead. And so I was really grateful for realizing that when I didn't really, really, really get that when my mom died. And what I mean is Mm -hmm. I told you, I thought, well, she lived a full life. Right. And then as you get older, you're like 46, that was nothing. Yeah, it was so much more painful to think of everything that my son was missing out on. So once I was able to integrate the idea that we are just on this one plane here, but his soul is experiencing so much, his soul is not missing out, all of these things in a spiritual sense, that helped me stop ruminating about the violence of his death. It helped me stop thinking about what he was missing out on. And then I got to focus more on my grief as a So the spiritual aspect of just realizing that there's so much more than we see and that he is more than okay, all of those things have helped me greatly in healing. And I know some people would say, you know, healing is a crock. There's no such thing as healing and grief. I think healing is possible. I think it's a long, I think it's a process. That's why I don't like the word closure. I don't want to be, I don't like the word closure. I think it's stupid, but, but healing with an ing right just like you talk about grieving with an ing i think it's important and i think it's 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 an ongoing process and i am absolutely not where i was 11 years ago i was a raw nerve ending yeah i was just walking pain that's all i was and i've experienced so much joy since then which seemed distasteful and ridiculous and impossible like i thought i could never experience joy again but I've experienced so much joy. I've experienced all the small stuff that didn't get to me before because all I could focus on was grief. All the little shit gets to me now again. (laughs) Absolutely. Right. So I'm operating in a very different place than I was 11 years ago. And, you know, I hope that that brings people hope just like at the very beginning, when I was writing about raw grief, that gave people insight, right? Totally. 
a window. Now, although I don't write as much because I'm just in a very different place in my life, I, I hope that it can bring people hope that you're not walking around like a raw ending, raw nerve ending forever. The thing that, you know, people say all the time, which is so brutal is like, oh, I could not, I could never survive that. I couldn't survive the loss of my child. I couldn't survive the, you know, whatever it is. Right. And, and again, you know, we're not here to compare the things, but I, but people say that to parents who have lost children all the time, I would not be able to survive it. And most folks that I know are like, fuck off. I can't either. And what I am in awe of in awe of is the human spirit's capacity to do absolutely and completely inconceivably impossible things. That to me is as holy as the idea that there's a spiritual place for our souls to go. And I have found that incredibly wildly humbling. And I really appreciate what you just said, which is like, look, what we're offering 11 years later is hope. And I have to tell you, as someone who reads your posts, that is what you have offered. I am as engaged as to what furniture you're putting in your lake house as how are you celebrating Jack's anniversary, which again, it's, it's right at the start of the school year. Right. So I feel it in my body every, every year. And it, you know, even just now when you said 11 years, I'm like, how is that possible? But I do think there is growth, right. And you, I'm comfortable with the word healing. I don't want to minimize somebody's grief experience by saying the grief is going to be healed and you will never experience it anymore. But in trauma work, we are looking to heal trauma. And by trauma, I don't mean the event that happened. The event happened. I mean the meaning that's being made inside your body around the dysregulation of that trauma. What is the most devastating aspect of the loss of someone that you loved is the legacy of it only leaving a terrible, awful, bad imprint, right? The way, even in your early grief, you talked about the joy of being a person who got to know Jack and his way of loving Legos and being a big brother and being a friend and all of the, and again, having his own spiritual life that you got to be a part of we don't want the only legacy of that preciousness to, no one wants that to be the fact that he died so tragically. That is not what anyone is looking for. And what you are telling us is you don't have to be an expert and know all the things and have all the resources. In fact, the way the human spirit works is you get to the other side and there's some joy there to be had, which is pretty remarkable. Incredible, isn't it? I remember talking to this woman, Joan, whose son had died of cancer just a little bit, I would say maybe like within a year earlier than Jack. And so she was talking and she was telling this story about that she and her husband were going to go on a boat trip and she was really looking forward to it. And I was so new in my grief and it was cold mm. and rainy because it felt like it rained all the time after Jack died. And I was frail. And I just looked at her and I said, wait, you really are looking forward to something, yeah. but you're not saying that because I already knew that to operate in the world, I would have to fake it for a while because people would not be comfortable with my yeah. blog. Yeah. They would be on my blog because they could come enter and exit when they wanted. But as far as me just being out in the world, I knew that I was just going to have to do a lot of faking it. And Joan said, no, I'm really looking forward to it. And that was such a beacon of hope mm -hmm. to me because at that point I didn't look forward to anything. 
I couldn't imagine ever looking forward to anything again. I thought I would have to just keep acting for the rest of my life. But Joan, who had also had a son die, provided me with hope. And I feel like I have been able to do that for other people. And it's yeah. not like a, not like a fake hope. It's just, you know, I hope it's just real because yeah. I am always carrying, you know, I'm always carrying the grief with me, but, but I, I have hope and I have joy in my life and I am in a completely different place. Yeah. And I don't know, you know, when I was writing those early blogs, those blogs turned into my first book, which was yeah. called Rare, Rare, Rare Bird. Bird. Yeah. I remember wondering whether it was wise to write a book so soon after a death. And I'm so glad I did for a couple of reasons. One, I'm so glad I did it because of course, remember that writing was so healing for me. Yeah. Okay. So therapeutic, but also it really captured that raw early grief. And I have people, it was like six, seven years ago, this book that I wrote, gosh, probably more than that. And I have people every couple of days writing me saying it is the first grief book they could ever read because it was it really speaks to this experience of the disorienting raw nature of it. But the other reason I'm glad I wrote it so early is 11 years on, I don't want to write that book right now. That's right. That's I totally right. Access that right now. And that's okay. That it's such a beautiful truth. I don't know if you know the writer, Matt Bays. Do you know Matt Bays? He's a good, okay. So Matt, when he was on my podcast, people know that I love Matt Bays. I would throw myself in front of a train for him. And he wrote this beautiful book about ostensibly, it's not the only thing, but it's about coming into his sexuality, leaving a marriage and also the death of his sister. And when we were talking about it on the podcast, he was like, I don't want to write another grief book. And I have a good friend who had a really wildly popular grief podcast about the death of her dad. That was her grief work. And she doesn't want to do it anymore. She did a great job at it. And now she wants to go date and live her life and, you know, move through it. And so even just that saying, like, I'm really glad I wrote that book then it had purpose and it was therapeutic and it was important and it's there for other people to connect to, but also that's not what I would do with my writing now. In fact, writing maybe isn't it. And I feel like that's another way of saying to people, look, this is the hope. The hope is that this is the way it's going to feel. It was always going to feel that way is a phrase that I use with my clients all the time. Like you are not wrong to feel this way. It's just a reminder that, that the human experience is about processing things emotionally and that emotions are built to move through the body over and over and over, which means, you know, 13 years from now, you may go to bed for the day because you are really grieving Jack. We don't get to predict and it's not a linear progression, but I do love hearing that part of the way you moved through some of the energy of that is the artifact of Rare Bird, which is a gorgeous book, by the way, for people. I don't know that it, that it's, that it's a book that everybody would be able to palette, to be honest. I think you're drawn to it with magnetism when you know that kind of loss and deep and profound and resonating and disorienting. It just reminds you that this is a, you know, it's a human process and that people survive it, which is extraordinary. The other thing about having followed you for so long is that We've also seen you live that life. Margaret's not still 10. And in fact, Margaret is not the youngest in your family anymore. I'm wondering if you can just tell folks a little bit about 
that as well about, about your family growing, because I also think that's something that people assume that when there's a tragedy, like the loss of a child, they hear what everyone hears, which is families break up and parents can't handle it and they can't be together. And they, you know, the families, the loss is becomes the definition of the family. And that is not the case. No. And I think also when a child dies, a lot of times people just push the family to have another one as if there's such a thing as like a replacement, right? And I was at a place where I was in my forties. And so fortunately I wasn't getting that kind of pressure from people to, oh, well, Jack's dead, have another kid. So I was really grateful to sort of escape that. But well after I wrote Rare Bird, well after I had done a lot of healing and really felt like I was in a very different place with my grief, I thought I was going through menopause and found out I was pregnant. So I ended up having a baby boy named Andrew when I was almost 47 years old. I just like can't even with this story. I remember the blog post said, call me Hallie, just call me Hallie. Because Halle Berry had also just had a baby or had gotten pregnant at 46 or 47 or something. Yeah, it was kind of a wild process because I will tell you that as a young mom, I always kind of wanted three kids. And, but I felt almost like I was pushing my luck. I've always been someone who was like afraid to ask for too much. And I thought, these kids are so great. I love these kids so much, you know having a third one, it just opens me up to more hard work, more heartbreak, more trauma, because even if your kid doesn't die, you're always going to have heart heartbreak in being a parent. Right. Mm-hmm. So we just didn't do anything about it. We didn't do anything about it. I also realized my husband's extremely passive. So with my husband, whatever I would say, okay, let's have a third child. And he was not, let's just say like hundred percent buy-in enthusiastic. Then of course I wouldn't do anything about it. What I didn't realize was, which I've learned over 30 years, is he may not say he wants the puppy either, but you bring the puppy home and then they're best friends, right? So pretty much the only way for us to have this third child would be for it not to have happened by a decision that my husband and I made. It was an absolute surprise. And, you know, given how rarely we had sex, it was a real surprise. And then I had to, you know, realize that at almost 47, of course, this could also, just by being a parent, it could lead to more heartbreak, but it could also lead to heartbreak in that maybe he, you know, wouldn't survive birth. Maybe he wouldn't be born into this world. And fortunately, everything was very smooth. And then we had to sort of readjust our expectations as to what our lives would be like. We'd already had to readjust them when Jack died, which is like an ongoing daily readjustment. And then to now realize that we're going to have a little child in our house until we're at least 65. Until you're a million. Yeah. And then I had to think about, wow, this is interesting. You know, my mom died when she was 46. Now I'm having a child at 46, which is pretty much requiring me to do what I can to try to live a long life. Even though when Jack died, I didn't want to live a long life. Yeah, I totally so get that. It's very interesting to me that it's not like I got pregnant at 41, 42, 43, 44, 45. I was 46, the same age as when my mom died. When you are grieving, things like ages, we really think about the age, the age we were. Oh, yeah, age. yeah. 
Yeah. You know, always that before and that after. And now yeah. I'm living a different kind of after, right? And it's an after that looks absolutely nothing like I thought it would. And I'm not doing as much writing and speaking as I did. And now I have a little child who is just like amazing, but he is this, you know, ball of need. Yeah. And so it's, it's just a very interesting place to be in my fifties. Let me put it that way. It's so humbling. The things that we think we know, right. About how the world is going to go and how we're going to be in the world. And again, one of the things that I really appreciated about your writing at that time was there, you were, it was the both. And it was the like unbelievable miracle surprise of this story. And also now we're, we tried to configure our family from a family of four to a family of three. And you wrote so beautifully about the pain of that. And now we're adding when we never expected to add. And what does that mean? And Andrew looks so like Jack as a, as a little guy. I mean, oh my God, it just, you know, watching him play with Jack's Legos and those sorts of things. I just felt like there is an ethos, right? Of keep grief into your one hour lunch session and do it there. But if you have to bring it out into the world, please make it a transformation story where we're back to succeeding and joy and growth and goodness. A lot of your writing refused to play on that one note. It was yes and, and the both of. Yeah, that is so important to me. It's so important to me. I don't live in the muck and the trenches of despair. I don't live there, but Mm -hmm. I live place of honesty. And so if people want to put like a little bow on my life, okay. Oh, they had another baby. That's just so perfect. Well, it's, it's amazing and it's miraculous. And I mean, I understand just how slim of a chance that would be. And I do want to acknowledge that I know that there are many, many people who would like a baby in their forties and everything they can to make it happen. So I'm not trying to make light of that. Of course. But what I don't want to do is put a bow on it and say, the Donaldsons had another baby. That is the, that's the story. And everything's a-okay easy because I like to write and think and just live in this world, realizing that life isn't easy and let's be honest about that. Let's support each other in that, you know? Yeah, I think we accidentally betray ourselves and our own experience if we go only towards the, oh, we're, you know, the American ethic is winning and health and goodness. And I think a lot about, I have friends whose parents have Alzheimer's. They're not dying at the moment, but they're losing their parents. And that process, you know, if their parent was dying, they would be asked more often to share their emotional experience about it. And One of the things that I've learned about that, for me, terrifying, I'm not sure that everyone, but terrifying experience of feeling so other when Mm -hmm. I, when I had worked so hard to feel connected, to build a life, an adult life filled with connection. I felt so unlike myself that what I've learned, even when it was an anger, because again, anger drove my bus for a little while. It was so important when someone said something innocuous, like, oh, I'm going to my dad's 85th birthday this weekend for me to be like, I want to hear about that. And I need you to know I'm doing the mental math of like, why did you get your dad for five more years? than I got my dad. I just need to say that out loud because I was putting myself under this arch of like shroud of silence when I would feel grief. 
And what I heard from people, particularly people who were close to me was not, I think what we fear, which is, and by the way, we fear this because people do it. People say you're, you post too much about your dead mom, but I didn't hear that. What I heard was, wow, I didn't think about that. I was not in that moment of thinking about the pain of, of the fact that you carry that pain all the time. And so it's like this little weird, like insistence on the awareness Yes, it was not to say, as you d- just said, like, I am, you know, a really happy person. I'm, I love my life. I'm happy about all the things in my life. Would I go back to have all the people who I've lost to be alive and with me? Yes. Would that change the trajectory of a lot of what I'm doing? It would, I'd still do it though. But just because I'm not in the throes of early grief where I'm like dysregulated and in trauma all the time, doesn't nullify the fact that the hardship of carrying the loss isn't just part of my identity and who I am. And I think the writing that you have done and the honesty around it is so illuminating and comforting for people. And your platform that you have now, you're always sharing, you know, the gritty, true things that on your Instagram and in your Facebook, or I can't remember where we follow each other, but again, it's that insistence of, you know, it's a both and situation that, that I'm defined by grief and also not defined by grief. Yeah. That's a great way to put it. It really is. And the challenge that I sort of face every day, which I think that we all face is how do I live a life that doesn't look like I thought it would. Okay. And there's this one person I follow on Instagram and she got like a magnet for her car. And if you live in Northern Virginia, oh my goodness, magnets everywhere. (laughs) The soccer, the field hockey, whatever. Anyway, her magnet says, I get to do this. Okay. Mm. And I was like, oof, (laughs) because I, you know, being this older mom and you know, first grade homework. I mean, all this stuff, right? A lot of times I'm in the, I have to do this stage Yeah. in early grief, losing Jack. Oh my gosh, that was so much harder, of course. And it was, I have to do this. I have to, I have to wake up today, choose to live. I have to parent a hurting child. Like the have tos were so strong. Now my have tos are more like, oh, I have to pretend to be interested in Pokemon, things like that. Right. But I I reframe it and I get to, and I'm not saying I'm there, but that's what I'm trying to do. Well, it's a practice, right? One of the things that drives me insane is when, you know, Oprah magazine says like, oh, well, you know, establish a gratitude practice and whatever, like in grief, we are always stretching. Maybe everyone is always stretching in life, but I think there are some times where you have your hand firmly around something. And I like the idea of inviting in the idea that this is, I get to, because there are a lot of paths that we could have gone down that maybe we would have wanted to go down that we're still grieving that we didn't get to go down, but it doesn't mean that this is only plan B and the worst version of a life that, you know, both things can be true. I did want to say this because I think it's one of those dichotomies that that I have in the back of my head a lot. Many parents have said what you have said, which is I had this other child who I had to parent. 
and I had to parent her. And therefore she was a help in sort of getting up and moving forward. And I don't even know what it is that I want to say about it, except to say I had three kids when my mom died and I could not parent them. I was not able And I ended up checking myself into a trauma facility where I send my clients largely because my daughter answered the door. Her friend came over my daughter who was, she was like 11 at the time, answered the door. It was right before school. So we had a lot of, my mom had died over the summer. And so there were like, I didn't know who knew what had happened. You know, we all had tan. So some people would be like, oh my God, you're so tan. And it's like, how do I respond to this? So mostly I wasn't, I was sitting on my porch. I wasn't out anywhere. And I was, my mind was getting ill with the idea that I had really maybe caused my mother's death, which I knew wasn't true, but I couldn't stop believing. And in fact, still, still believe. Sometimes that's how ruminations work. So right. even though I know it's not true, that doesn't mean that I don't believe it sometimes. So my daughter's friend rang the doorbell. My daughter opened the door and she didn't realize I was on the porch. And the friend was like, Oh, you want to come out and play? And my daughter was like, You know, I do. I really want to come out and play, but my mom's not feeling well. And I think maybe I should stay here just in case she needs something. Uh-oh. And I was like, Okay, I now fully understand the what the legacy of this that is going on with me has the potential to be Uh she's 11 and she thinks she can't be 11. And the only reason that I'm saying it is that there is a version in my head of, I wish I could have been the mom who found meaning. And I want to say that out loud because I think most grievers have that thing that they wish Uh could have been the griever who did it this way, who started a foundation or who wrote a book or who donated money to charity or became closer to their sister or whatever. I want to say it out loud because I have it when I hear other parents say, oh, I had to, I had to do it for my kid. I'm like, yeah, I still couldn't do it. I still Mm -hmm. couldn't, that wasn't on the table, but I would have liked to have been that version of a parent who like, I don't know what could pull it up. And the thing that I feel the most proud of in my entire life is checking myself into treatment and going and getting the help that I needed because I just literally know, even though I've studied all the things, treat people for the actual things that I was suffering with, I couldn't have pulled myself out of it all by myself. So even though I wish I could have been a better parent, I also think I was the world's best and most amazing parent all in the same moment. And I feel like God, that's what grief gives you, gives you both those things. Yeah. And I'm so glad that you said that out loud because it's like, people need to hear both things. Yeah. Oh, my daughter's what got me out of bed in the morning, but then also I couldn't, and I knew I needed to do this other thing so that I could parent my kids. I think that's very important to hear both, both parts of that. Yeah. Well, and we tell ourselves a lot of stories about how the grief would have been better And again, I had a therapist once I was complaining about my husband was out of town when my dad died. And she was just plainly, she was like, oh, so the story you're telling yourself is that it would have been less painful. Your dad's death would have been less painful if your husband had not been away. And I was like, oh shit, (laughs) that doesn't, that doesn't sound sensical now that you're saying it out loud. And I just think, well, I know because I ask people about them that we all have those things, right. That it would have been better. Yeah. And you know, it's like one thing that you just said kind of healed me a little bit because Mm -hmm. you are trauma informed. 
you are a professional who knows all of this stuff. And sometimes I look back and I think if I just could have been strong enough to access the kind of help my family needed, if I could have found a support group for our daughter, you know, these different things, I kind of feel like I could have done a better job. And so to hear that you knew all of those things and still weren't really able to access what you needed hundred percent until you checked yourself in, that actually makes me feel a little better about what I was and wasn't able to do. I'm glad I remember my therapist being like, I bet you're going to become a therapist, aren't you? And I was like, well, I don't know. And I remember having this thought in the back of my head, that would be a great way to inoculate myself from ever having all those bad things Uh, happen to me again. And so when my mom died, you know, you do the things first, you do the funeral and you do all the calling of the people and the buying of the egg salad sandwiches and the picking the plot, you know, you do all those things and you have to do them. So you do them. And then the cars pull away and you're by yourself, you know, with lasagna and the, the betrayal of my belief about what, how I was keeping myself safe was such a, a brutal secondary loss that the idea that knowing all of the things and being a part of all the things and treating all the things did not give me a pass to having to experience trauma again in my life in this way. I mean, that probably is what, where the anger was. That's probably why anger was like, I'm getting up 10 minutes early and I'm jumping into the driver's seat because are you fucking kidding me with this? Right. And, you know, I, I think that I mistakenly must've thought deep down, well, if my mom died when I was young, I've done my thing. That's right. right. But that's not how life works. And I think women, we want to so control things. We become controlling and we're holding so tightly to the way we want things to be. But we, once we realize we don't really have any control, it's, it's, it's very freeing. It is freeing a rumination that I had the most when my mom died was it's my fault because I was with her when she died and I knew, right? So I have all this learning and I'm like, what is the purpose of a rumination? A rumination is like a sleight of hand. It's a distraction. It's a look over here so that you don't have to think about or feel something harder. And my harder, which I knew was like, what kind of life are you going to possibly have without your mother on this planet? Like, how do you think you're going to do that? So the rumination that was making me so sick, I had respect for it. Like, I get it. You're trying to help. You're trying to, you're trying to be a part of this. I want to ask you a question and you can say that is out of bounds, Megan. That's too hard a question. But what I remember from the story of Jack's death is that he was with some friends. And in my childhood trauma, part of the trauma that I only really came to understand, I was nine was that I felt responsible also for the fact that this teenager died. Mm -hmm. And I, since I was a child, it's a question I ask every parent, wondered whether or not his family also held me account. Not the other adults. I don't even care about anybody else, but held me as a nine-year-old accountable. And I have always wondered for you, knowing that he was with other children Not that we expect children to be able to save or, but is that a hard space in your heart? The idea that, that they survived and Jack did not be the truth of the story. Is it hard to hold those children 
in the space of children who couldn't have saved his life. Do you feel differently about the fact that his story is connected to other people? Does that make, does that question make sense? It does. It does. Yeah. I would say when you were saying about anger, driving your bus or whatever, for me, the anger, it wasn't like a lot of people are angry at God. And I wasn't really that angry at God. I really had a lot of anger towards the other kids he was with. And I'm an adult. Okay. And now I have another kid who's six and a half. And I know that he could be standing beside someone at a Creek and another child could die. And I don't want people holding that against him. Right. Right. But, but so it wasn't rational, but I had so much anger towards the other kids yeah. and I'm not making you feel better after, after. No, I mean, again, I feel relieved in the truth of it. That's what I would assume what I would assume. And actually when I sat with Glennon and I was like, oh my God, I said to her, I have to tell you, here's the thing that I keep thinking about. How are those two other boys? I think it was two other boys. How are they going to live with themselves for the rest of their life? And really what I was talking about was me. What I was talking about was the legacy of what it has felt like to feel responsible for something that I don't know if I was responsible for. Like I, anyone can say, Megan, you were nine years old. You were not responsible. That is right. not how responsibility works. The same way every single person that I said, oh my God, I feel like it's my fault that my mom died. Every single person, except one woman who is also a therapist, what her response to me was, I am so sorry it feels that way, but I will not try to take that from you. And right. I was Oh, you know, that was the only, so it's not, I'm not looking for like negative confirmation bias. I'm always looking for the truth. And actually something just settled in me, which is like, yeah, I, I think anyone would be angry. Yeah. And it's tough because then I had to, cause I'm this very responsible, caring, loving person. And I had to be like, am I responsible for reaching out and comforting these other kids? Or can I just stay here in my own horrible shit and deal with it. And I did tell myself, you know what? Other people are going to have to be the ones yeah. to help them through this. And I was able to help some of Jack's other friends through it by being there and showing up at important life events and things like that. But I had to give myself a pass in that particular instance. And it's one of those things that my anger was so strong. And I just... I'm not there anymore. Thank God. But I wondered if I was going to be this angry, bitter old woman who, you know, wanted to deprive other children of their lives and futures. You know, I was like, I don't want to be that person. Yeah. But again, God, I'm so grateful for this conversation because I think people say, so the very, one of the very first times I hung out with Glennon was when her first book tour was happening. And, and I went to a friend of hers house and there were a whole bunch of people there and she came in and she was wearing a red tutu dress and her eyes were like this big. I think as she had some sense being a deep feeler that she understood that like the rocket was about to take off, like yeah. people were already in line waiting to get a signed copy of her book. And she came in and she said, what are we doing here? And I was like, oh, we're celebrating your book. Like we're here to celebrate your book. It's like a baby shower. And she was like, don't people hate baby showers? And I was like, no, people love baby showers. And she was like, I hate baby showers. I think people hate baby showers. And then I was like, no, that's true. 
people <laughs> hate baby showers. Like baby showers are tedious if you're not the person or it's not your sister. And I just remember being like, whatever that is, where you're going to lean into the, just telling the truth of it. That is not worse. That is more comfortable. That is, and that's my commitment in grief and loss is to be, I just want to know the actual, I want to say the actual thing. And I want to be around people who can hear that. And I also want to hear the actual thing. And I think the truth is that when your 12 year old son dies and he's somewhere with two of his friends you probably despise and wish bad things on those friends for a while, not because that's who you want to be, but because that's who you actually are in that moment. And with grace and movement and grief work, that shifts and changes. But we just have to tell the truth about how these things impact us because we know the truth. If we don't say the truth, then how can other people feel like, oh my God, well, yeah, that's just normal, of course. And that's, again, that's the phrase I use is it was always going to feel this way. You're not doing something wrong. This is the way that it feels. Yeah. And I just think it's, I guess my message would just be, it's, it just feels so good not to be in that place now, yeah. but I don't, oh, I, I have been shamed out of it at the time or dragged out of it at the time or counseled out of those feelings at the time, I, you know, but it feels really good not to have those feelings now. Yeah. I think of, it's not my phrase, but I think of the concept of like, when you've survived trauma, when you work in the therapy space, when you're someone who tries, strives to tell the truth and tells your own story with all the dark and the light of it is being able to be sort of a hope merchant to other people. And I really, I'm so grateful for this conversation because I feel like the gift of not only your talent as a writer, but also your courage to write during from the space of the wound has given people the whole perspective, me particularly in this conversation, the watching and the observing and the caring about it's extraordinary what humans, what human life can be, what it can offer and what we can carry and hold and still experience the humanity. I mean, I drove across the country after my mom died because I couldn't sit still, even though it was COVID with my kids in the car and everyone was like, oh my God, what a great parenting thing. And I was like, nope, this isn't about parenting. I am grieving. But I stood in the badlands and was like, oh my God, there is something here that it goes beyond my pain. And it was such a relief. I was so relieved to discover that the world is a bigger place than only my personal experience of pain. And, and people can call that whatever they want, God or spirituality or whatever. I just was like, thank you. That is a connection. And I think a lot of people come to other people's words, their books, their writing, their blogs, their, you know, podcasts. I think they come to them for that experience of like, oh my God, this goes beyond me. And that that's a huge relief. That is what a beautiful gift of perspective, you know, and you also, I've never heard the phrase hope merchant. So I, I want, I like that. Isn't that beautiful? So that's from IFS therapy, Dick Schwartz. And he's the one that writes about different parts of your personality. I love the phrase hope merchant. It's like, that's what I'm selling. I'm selling you hope and you can buy it or I'll give it to you as a gift. But I, your work has been really important to me personally and professionally. And I just, this conversation has been such a gift to me today. I knew we were going to like get in it and the hairs were going to go up on my arm as they have. And I'm just really grateful. I'm really grateful to know you and to have known you and about you and cared about you, you know, adjacent 
for such a long time. It's really it's an honor, but I can't wait to keep hearing about your world, which is unfolding with a six and a half year old and not only centered on grief. Like what a gorgeous gift to leave our audience with. Yeah. Thank you so much. This has been really, really a wonderful way to spend my morning. Thank you.